So have you ever been in a sticky situation? Sticky situation. If you were on Calumet Avenue in Hammond, Indiana, around 6 o'clock Wednesday morning, you might have been in a really sticky situation. It seems that there is a semi-truck that was trying to get on I-94, and as he got on, something didn't go right, and his truck that was, oh, Harold, helping me with my cheese. Thanks, man. You're, you're not cheesy, Harold. You're, you're a good guy. I actually really needed a swig of water. Thanks, my friend. That truck was carrying 41,000 pounds of honey. <laughs> truck tipped over. There was 13 huge containers of honey on that truck. Five of them busted up all over the road. So there was, I don't know, however many pounds of honey all over the place. As Justin Mack of the Indianapolis Star wrote, somewhere Winnie the Pooh is shedding a tear. Oh, bother. I've never done Winnie the Pooh. I don't know why I just did that. We've always been in a sticky situation from time to time, right? Maybe you had one this week. Maybe one's coming this week. But you know what's worse than a sticky situation? What's worse is when something doesn't stick. Now, you got to be careful with statistics, you know. Don't go buy any oceanfront property in Arizona based on statistics, right? Statistics are good. They're helpful, but, but we have to be careful. But a few years ago, Lifeway Research put together a report saying that 70% of young adults were actually leaving the church. And really, it was the ages of 17 to 19 where the biggest exodus was happening. So even just on the surface, those statistics seem to be showing that something is not sticking. Something's not right. Kara Powell and Chap Clark and their book, Sticky Faith, they, they try to give parents some ideas, some tips on how to help their, their kids stick with their faith. And one intriguing thing that they found in their research was this, that one of the most significant ways that they were able to see that young people stuck with their faith was if high school and college students worshipped with the rest of the adults in the church. That if, if they were to gather together and, and worshipping with the other adults, that percentage-wise they saw that those folks would stick with their faith even more. Pastor John Ortberg, a few weeks ago in his Sunday message, responded to that idea with this. Too often kids go off to college and they know youth group, but they did not know or identify with church. He goes on to describe that their church has strategic ministry opportunities during the week for high school students and middle school students and college students for the purpose of making sure that they know they desire for those students to worship with them as a whole on Sundays. Holland Avenue is set up the exact same way with the same kind of idea and the same kind of joy. Orberg goes on to talk about what this looks like for the older adults in the church. Ortberg, 62, says this. Now, that means for those of us who are older, we have to say, my first priority when I come to worship will not be me, will not be my preferences, my style, my taste, my decibel level, and my comfort. And then he says this. I would rather pay the price needed to be part of a church that passes on faith in Jesus Christ to the next generation than be part of a church that caters to my taste and dies. 
Holland Avenue Baptist Church still exists because generation after generation after generation of older adults have joyfully paid that price and keep paying the price to make sure that the next generation has the gospel. That's not true of all churches, sadly. In fact, in our community, in our state, it seems that there is a fast-growing number of churches where the older adults have not paid the price and will not pay the price, and those churches are dying. But it's not just the older adults, right? If you're a Christian, when you come to church, your first priority when you come is not what's here for you. Your first priority should be, I am here to bring honor and glory and worship to Jesus first and most. And if you come with that attitude, God will meet whatever you need. But God hasn't called us to come here primarily thinking of ourselves, but thinking of Jesus and how we can serve him and love others. Ortberg goes on to say this, if you are young, you need to be around some older people. You need their wisdom, you need their experience, you need them to teach you how to live in the faith. You need the steadiness of purpose that comes from being with people who have weathered the storms of life. And he says this, if you're old, you need to be around younger people. You need their energy, you need their enthusiasm, you need them to teach you how to use technology. You need the vitality and flexibility and learning that comes from being around people who are filled with possibility and have not yet learned what cannot be done. It's good words, encouraging words. So, graduates spread out around the room. We don't want you to be Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day Christians. Because if that's true, that might be a reflection of of where your heart and your mind really are with God. Now, we want you to be connected. We want you to have relationships. And so for old and young alike, God has called us to, to live in the church in such a way that we build the kind of atmosphere and the kind of relationships that kind of create a world of sticky faith around the church. That's our desire. That's what God's called us to do. So how do we do that? How do we go about having more of an atmosphere that creates sticky faith? Well, there's only one fuel that will drive that kind of love, and we're going to look at it now. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Apostle Paul writing his friends at the church at Philippi, he says this, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Sticky faith comes from the wonder of losing. The wonder of losing. Losing what? Well, Paul says losing everything. Debbie's luggage was messed up. She couldn't find her purse anywhere. She didn't walk into the airport through one of those really nice closed-in hallways. She had no identification. She had no money. She was soaking wet. She was a long way from home. And she got out of the plane, out in the pouring rain, and, and walked in the rain to the airport. On any other day, Debbie would have been angry and frustrated and calling for somebody's head. But not that day. On that day, in that moment, in that night, 
She had just survived Flight 1420 that crashed in Little Rock, Arkansas. There were 145 people on the plane that night. The captain of the plane and 11 passengers died. Debbie, after it was all over, said this, when I walked off that plane, I walked off with nothing. But then I stopped and thought, I have everything. Everything. See, Debbie learned that night the the precious value of life. So what is most precious to you? What is most important to you? What is the most valuable thing in your life? What is the greatest value in your world? The answer to those questions defines who you are. When Paul says the loss of all things, he's creating a pretty powerful picture. What he's doing is he's, he's saying that, that we need to understand that the greatest and most important, most important, most valuable, most satisfying reality in the universe is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus? I've shared these thoughts with you before on the personal reality of Jesus from John Piper. He writes, there's a person who's alive who laid down his life. He loves, he thinks, he feels, he wills, and even today he has a body. That body came down from that cross, and when it rose from the tomb, though it had special qualities about it, it was recognized by his followers. They could touch it. It could eat fish to prove that it was not a ghost. So there is a a whole person whom we're going to relate to forever and ever. He's alive today. He's at the Father's right hand. He is personal. He promised never to leave us or forsake us. He promised to be with us. He is here in this room right now by His Spirit listening to me. He is as close to you as the person next to you. He is real. He is a person. He is a He. He is there. He's there. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Do you know Christ? Not do you know about Christ, but do you know Christ? Did you sit in traffic this week able to say, Jesus, what a friend for a sinner like me. Jesus, still saving, still loving, still keeping me here. Do you know Jesus? Paul says that knowing Jesus Christ is excellent. He's saying here that that the most excellent reality in the universe is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Not just knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, but knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Paul is saying that the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is so surpassing, no matter what you hold up next to it, it will fade. It's that valuable. It's that amazing. That's why Jesus said this, Luke 9, 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Having a nice home in in a nice neighborhood is great. Getting good grades, growing up in a family that went to church, getting scholarships for college, going out in the workforce and, and working hard and getting a good job and 
and getting promotions, those are all fantastic. They're great. But they can also be dangerous. Dangerous when we begin to make those things our main trust in life, our main confidence in life. Paul had a good religious family, had a good education from a respected school. He was a go-getter. He was a hard worker. He had a lot of charisma. He had a lot of authority. But he quit putting his trust in those things. He didn't, he didn't start being dumb. <laughs> he was still smart. He was still sharp. He was still a go-getter. He was still a hard worker. He, he didn't stop being what God had created in his life, but he quit putting his confidence, his main trust in those things. Why? Because something happened. What happened? This is how he told the folks at Ephesus, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul didn't just make some kind of decision for Christ. The living God of the universe made him alive in Christ. God transferred him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Can you remember that moment? Has that moment happened in your life where, where you understood and you felt that that transfer had happened? Paul had a good life. He had an impressive resume, good work history, grew up in a, a good family that went to church. And all of that and a nickel was going to get him a fancy box of nothing. Nothing. See, Paul, he began to understand that something happened. See, in a blink of an eye, Paul went from losing his greatness, losing his temporary greatness, losing his skills and his accomplishments and his education, losing his greatness. In a blink of an eye, he lost his greatness, but he gained the surpassing, eternal, personal greatness of Jesus. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced what, what it means to, to lose like that? That the wonder of losing your greatness and the wonder of gaining the greatness of Christ. Jeff Thomas says this, how do we gain the surpassing greatness of Christ? Clearly not by ceremonies, not by patriotism, not by birth, not by lineage and breeding, not by belonging to the right group, not by zeal, not by law-keeping. He says this, Paul had done that, and those things had not brought him to Christ. And then he says, but those dear idols, whatever they may be, have you said to them all you're a dead loss. If I keep hanging on to you, we will go to hell together. Have you felt the pain of smashing your gods and pouring contempt on all your pride? You do not gain Christ by climbing up to him by a ladder you make for yourself. You start with Christ. He says, I am the door. You are nowhere unless you are through that door. Are you through that door this morning? If you're not through that door, we, we plead with you to come to Jesus. 
We, we pray that, that God would make you alive and that you would repent and that you would put your heart, your mind, your life, your soul into following Jesus. He is the most surpassing, valuable treasure ever. Paul's trust was not in the religion of his parents. His trust was not in his religious activity. Paul's trust was not in getting good grades and and working hard. His trust was in the person of Jesus Christ. He he was completely wrapped up in the fact that, that he knew Jesus personally. It wasn't information about Jesus. It was a relationship, and it was an excellent relationship. And that excellent relationship with Jesus changed how he lived. And friend, if you have that excellent relationship with Jesus, it'll change how you live. This is what Paul says it'll change. Verse 8, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul says, because I've followed after Jesus, I've, I've lost all things. Now, Paul's not just shooting from the hip here. This isn't preacher language on Sunday morning. Paul understood what it meant to lose everything. He lost all of his status. He lost all of his importance. He lost all of the, the future financial gain that he could have had if he just kind of kept his place in the leadership role. And now as he's writing this letter, he's in prison. He's, he's lost just the, the basic freedoms of daily life. And yet it's funny. Paul writes as if he hadn't lost anything. I mean, think about that. If you were to lose your status, lose your fame, lose your job, lose your house, lose your car, lose your retirement, if you were thrown in prison, do you think your first response would be, I'm good? I'm fine. Everything's good. No problems. Let me just confess for us, we probably wouldn't, you know. We would probably get angry or or mad. We might get depressed or or bitter. But hopefully it would just be for a little while. Hopefully, if we're believers, then we would let God pull us up again out of our misery and remind us of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And that that would change our moment. Someone has described this like a bunch of sailors on a ship when the ship is in a storm. This is what they said. When faced with the danger of a shipwreck, the crew throws everything overboard so that the ship can be made lighter and possibly help them towards safely reaching the harbor. As he writes this letter, Paul's been 30 years now as a a follower of Jesus. God had saved him 30 years before. God had made him alive 30 years before. And yet still his personal relationship with Jesus just felt amazing. Not to put any guilt on any of us, but, but for those of us who have been a Christian for 20 or more years, man, where's our passion and our zeal for Jesus? Do we still have it? Does it still feel like the first day? Can we still not get over that we've been saved? Are there moments during the week that, that we just stop in all of our first world problems and go, oh my goodness, I will rise. Jesus loves me and has saved me and redeemed me. Friend, we should never get over that. 
hour after hour, second by second, minute after minute, day after day. Paul seemed to not be able to get over it. For 30 years, Paul had been throwing things overboard. He'd been getting rid of anything that interrupted him making Jesus his greatest treasure. Think about it just for a moment. If you're a Christian, what have you done with and for Jesus since you got saved, since you were baptized, since you joined the church? Was it just like something that happened a long time ago and and now you're just kind of going through the the good motions of, of being in church? Are you just showing up for worship every week and and giving but not really striving to follow Jesus? You see, the time to lose stuff is not when the boat or the plane is about to crash. The time to lose stuff is is today. Today. What is it that you need to start throwing overboard? What what attitudes of apathy or anger or arrogance or, or whatever it is, what is it that you need to throw overboard starting today? Maybe fear or anxiety or worry or, or stress. Well, what kind of things do we need to throw overboard? And let me just say, you know what? Those things will jump back on the ship tomorrow morning. <laughs> They'll be right back there. We'll have to throw them off again. But what do we need to be throwing off? Paul's saying that your personal relationship with Jesus defines who you are. It is your greatest treasure. And then he takes it just a little bit deeper. Listen to what he says in verse 8. And I count these things but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul had put a a lot of confidence in in what he had inherited from his parents. He'd put a a lot of confidence in his family and and what he had accomplished and his status and his fame. But then he said, you know, I I can't do that anymore. I've, I've seen who Jesus is. And because I've met Jesus, all of these things have changed. And now he's writing saying, you know what? Everything that I once trusted in, all these things that I thought were amazing, all these things that when people said, hey, what do you do for a living? Hey, where do you live? Hey, where do your kids go to school? Hey, do you have any grandkids? All the things that I used to define my life immediately, I now consider those things loss because I've seen Jesus. I've seen Jesus. Paul uses the word rubbish here. The word rubbish in the Greek language, it means dung, dog meat, or garbage. <laughs> All right? Pretty clear what he's trying to do here, but, but I want to be clear about what he's not doing. Paul is not saying that our kids and our grandkids and our accomplishments are terrible, awful, evil things and we're never supposed to bring them up. He's not saying that our religious deeds and our good deeds are all evil. That's not what he's saying. Paul's just saying that if somebody were to ask me to hold up my greatest and most priceless and most valuable trophy, it won't be my family, it won't be my job, it won't be my favorite sports team, it won't be me. Paul said, my trophy is because God made me alive. My trophy is because God saved me. My trophy is because Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. So I hold up Jesus. He's my greatest treasure. He's my most valuable possession. I have nothing without him. How are your trophies today? What is it that you put everything in? Paul's kind of being like a great parent or, 
or your best friend when there's clear and present danger in your life and, and they're warning you. Paul seems to be crying out to us, don't let pride and arrogance and apathy, don't let those things control you. Throw them overboard because they will drag you to hell. No, do everything you can to gain Christ now. Over and over again, do everything you can to gain more of Christ because there is no treasure like Jesus. Now, what does that look like in real life? What does it look like if you, if you really, really, really consider the surpassing value of Jesus? as the one thing that runs and drives your life? How would that impact the way you live and how you act toward others? Trey Gowdy is an attorney. He's a former federal prosecutor. He just finished serving as a U.S. representative for South Carolina. Last year, he published a book with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and the title of the book is Unified, How Our Unlikely Friendship Gives Us Hope for a Divided Country. Tim Scott is black. He grew up in working-class poverty in the low country of South Carolina. Trey Gowdy is white. He grew up with middle- to upper-class privileges in the upstate of South Carolina. And yet these two men from completely different backgrounds are the best of friends. And really their friendship kind of began in Washington, D.C., Their friendship is so strong, they even know each other's moms. In fact, Trey has said that he is convinced that his mother put her campaign sticker for Tim Scott in a more prominent position on her car than she did for her own son. That may have been because one year, Tim Scott's birthday flowers to Trey's mom got there before Trey's flowers got to his mom. So there may be a little bit something going on here. In one part of the book, Trey Gowdy describes what happened to him the Sunday after the shootings and the murders at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. This is going to be kind of a a lengthy uh, closing illustration, but I I want you to to hear all of this from his words because I think his words matter the most. This is what he says. I wanted to go to church with people of color because I needed to be with folks who would share and reflect my anger. I wanted to be with people who would shake their fist in the face of God like the prophet Habakkuk, ask how a merciful, loving God could possibly allow wicked to prevail over good. He'd been friends for a long time with the Reverend Jackson at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Spartanburg, so he decided to go to Cornerstone that morning. And he describes what happens. I parked in the church parking lot and walked toward the entrance with my head down. When I entered the church vestibule, a young black couple greeted me and politely asked if I was visiting. When I said yes, they welcomed me and invited me to sit with them. Though my intention was to remain as inconspicuous as I could, I think I assumed they probably knew who I was. I'd grown up in Spartanburg and now lived only a few miles away. I'd been a district attorney in town. My father was a doctor there. My wife is well-known in the community, and I was currently their congressman. I'd even visited the church before, and I had friends who attended regularly. Surely they knew who I was, and I presume that's why they felt comfortable befriending me. As we sat down in our pew, some friends from Cornerstone began to stop by to say hello. 
First, an older black man, then a younger couple. Each one shook my hand and thanked me for visiting. After the third person stopped by to speak to me, the woman who had first invited me to sit with her family turned to me, smiled, and asked, excuse me, but who are you? People seem to know you. At that moment, a stunning awareness hit me. This couple who had invited me to sit with them during the church service had no idea who I was. When I walked into the building that morning, I was a white stranger entering their black church community just four days after a white stranger had murdered nine black people at a church. Still, they had welcomed me without hesitation. How could they be so warm and trusting with a white visitor so soon after that unspeakable tragedy? Hadn't they learned from the vulnerability of the church members in Charleston? Surely they would be on guard for any new faces, wouldn't they? Surely they would be suspicious of a random white visitor. Surely they would not have been so hospitable unless they knew me, right? Tears began rolling down my face as the service began, and I experienced the broadest spectrum of emotions. I felt humbled by their grace and trust. I felt enraged because innocent people who dared to welcome a stranger had been killed. I felt anger that God had let these people die while they studied the Bible. Most of all, I felt ashamed that I was angry in the presence of such humility, trust, and grace. Then he says this, the real victims, black Christians, were the ones opening their arms, welcoming a stranger into their circle, and inviting him to worship alongside them. Cornerstone Baptist Church was exactly the wrong place for me to go wallow in anger and question God. Instead, Reverend Jackson preached a beautiful sermon on forgiveness, faith, and trusting God. I didn't want to hear any of it. I needed to hear all of it. Now, I can't speak for the life of this young couple or for that church, but I do think there's a pretty good picture there. How do you invite when you want to fight? How do you forgive when you want to be angry and bitter? How do you have faith when your faith feels like it's a waste? And how do you trust God when you feel like God made a mistake? How do you do that? I think what Paul's telling us is this. We keep whispering to our soul the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is surpassing. It's great. It's unbelievable. And we don't just whisper to our soul. We shout to our soul. Jesus Christ is my greatest treasure. He is my treasure above all treasures in this universe. And then we keep singing to our soul until it sticks. Jesus loves me. This I know.